putting energy into practice, pandemics and Brexit. Interview with Andrew Judge, episode 19. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. On this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast, we are speaking with Andy Judge, lecturer in international relations and deputy head of politics and international relations at the University of Glasgow. In the first part of the episode, we cover energy as a topic of study, how teaching energy prompts an inquisition into new teaching methods and as a means to convey our research. We drive home the point there is a great importance in learning to communicate complex energy topics into understandable summaries for normal people. Later, we delve into the non-existent topic of Brexit and energy. It is not exciting, and this is the best part, because the energy system between the UK and EU countries continues to operate like normal. The lack of crisis means the energy relations are still working, and this is something for us to pay attention to. We cover the potential independence of Scotland and their ability to rejoin the EU. Lastly, we discuss Andy's cutting-edge co-research into pandemics, elites, and energy, which turns out he was doing pandemics before her present pandemic, which means, for me, we need to listen to Andy because he knows what's coming before it comes. We discuss his latest research into elite messaging around pandemics. That stay-at-home order? Having no choice turns out to be the only choice for politicians to control the pandemic. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. If you enjoy this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. And now for this week's episode. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for having me, Michael. Thank you. Uh, we have a lot of uh, really cool uh, discussion topics to go through. And I know we've been exchanging emails for a few months now. And fortunately for us, uh, our semesters are winding down. So now we do actually have the time to talk about a teaching energy and current events around COVID and energy relations. But before we get to all that, I actually want to ask you about why why you got interested in energy and why do you pursue it as a actually maybe I shifted not just as a research topic but also as a teaching topic because I think that's really special sure um so I think like a lot of people I sort of fell into studying energy um basically when I was looking around for PhD topics I wanted to do something on securitization theory so my background is really in security studies and um, so securitization theory, the idea that some policy or political issues are constructed as existential threats, and this can allow extraordinary measures that wouldn't otherwise be possible to uh, be passed or enacted. And I was looking around for case studies, and this was back in 2007, 2008. So Russia had cut off the gas briefly through Ukraine, and um I didn't know anything about energy. I thought, oh, this is quite interesting. So I started looking at, into it and um, I put together a proposal which was sort of looking at a comparison between gas supplies and climate change in the European Union. Um, but then, unfortunately, when I tried to get funding for it, um, that didn't quite work. And actually, the university that did fund me or put me forward for funding said, you should really do energy security. That's the big topic. And... I sort of reluctantly agreed. Um, I thought, okay, this could be quite interesting, but I really wanted to do uh, climate change. Uh, but then when I got into it, it was just fascinating. I mean, there was just so much going on. Um, and I was a total novice. I mean, I just had to try and make sense of all these things. Um, and actually about two or three months into my PhD is when the 2009 gas crisis yeah. happened. So it then, well, it, became obvious that oh, no we're so actually, lucky as academics we're so lucky as academics that these crises occur <laughs> we oh, yeah, have something I mean, to look at it's, it's definitely it's, it's definitely helpful for this sort of thing i mean uh, there's a whole bunch of us that in the uk who were doing related topics at the time and we all say this we say you know it's obviously not great that lots of people have their gas cut off uh, in southeastern europe but at the same time it kind of 
made our academic careers <laughs> in that respect. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's like a decade of research that follows it. I mean, now I think we're kind of transitioning actually the past, yeah, just two or three years away from this gas security. But yeah, we get a good decade run out of crisis. Oh, definitely. I mean, we all then started searching for other topics. And um, and, and the good thing with NGA is that there's not really a shortage of things to look at. I mean, it's just it's one of those research areas that touches so many different things. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in climate and environmental issues, that's one direction. Energy poverty, justice issues. I mean, there's just so much you can end up uh, looking at. And Actually, that's what um, I wanted to go back to was like your original approach was, I mean, yeah, I don't mean make light of gas crisis and crisis in general, but but you, you, you kind of have this framework or a framework you want to look at and then you apply that to the energy sector and look at those issues there. Is that kind of your, your approach to this? It was certainly my approach at the start. And I think I probably had that, um, you know, tunnel vision that a lot of us have when we start out doing research of, I thought, okay, here's a case, I'll apply that. How hard could it be? Um, but but I guess actually one of the things that's interesting about energy, um, and it took me a while to realize this was, securitization theory kind of works but not really like there's a lot of things you have to adapt and actually the better way to think about it as well if uh, you securitize energy how does that well what does that look like and does that change what uh, constructing security issues looks like what it does and how we should evaluate it i think that's this better set of questions um i mean i suppose I could be a bit flippant and say a lot of my research since I finished my PhD has been correcting the problems in my PhD, you know, um, <laughs> you know, because like you then sort of go, oh, actually, yeah, there's much more interesting stuff here. Um, yeah. Yeah. But is that, I mean, is that, I mean, because research is a field of study, right? I mean, we have like journals like uh, Energy Policy, which has been long established, but newer ones like Energy Research and Social Science, right? And there's this greater involvement of social sciences now in in en the energy sector. And it's it's almost trying to, how do I frame it? Not just take, yeah, we have these established theories that we can apply, but we're also now drawing from those, yeah, the unique characteristics of the energy sector itself and bringing those out and, and creating theories to, to understand what's going on. Yeah, and I think that one of the key things about the energy sector as a policy tool, again, I'm sure this applies to some others as well, is you can't just reduce energy down to one particular thing. I mean, energy has an impact on everything, trade, wider economic policy, environmental policy, and so on. And so when you start to get into that, you're kind of confronted with just the sheer complexity of things or how different things are interconnected. And in that, uh, that sort of respect, simple theories or established theories often don't entirely work or they can provide some insight into some part of it, sure. But you have to have... I guess, a bit more of an open mind about these things. Um, and actually, as well, be willing to go beyond your own disciplinary background. I mean, I'm trained as a political scientist and international relations expert. But, you know, I found when doing research and indeed for teaching, I draw widely on geography, economics, um, even uh, legal studies and so on. Uh, and you kind of have to do that uh, to try and make sense of any NG topic, I think. Yeah. And I, I was going to maybe bring it around to, we were going to talk about teaching uh, and, and how do you, how do you select first, I guess, uh, what, what courses do you teach on, on energy? Um, and then how do you select the topics to uh, talk about in class? This is always the, how do you pare <laughs> things down? Uh, with great difficulty is the short answer. Um, so I, I teach a um, undergraduate honors level course on global energy politics um, and I do some introductory lectures for our international relations students um, that touch on NG issues. But um, I mean, I think that choosing topics is difficult because, I mean, it's going to vary by context is the obvious thing to say. So I'm teaching this in a politics and international relations uh, program. If I was teaching this part of an NG master's, it would be very different. 
Um, but I think it's also then about what you're actually trying to do with teaching or why you're teaching this topic. Because with the best will in the world, most students are not going to be as interested or they're not going to geek out as much about energy stuff as you or I will. Um, it, they're, that's not their main focus. And actually, I mean, I find that with students that come into my class, there's, a, there's this little hardcore who are really into the topic and they wanted to do this, well, they have wanted to do it for several years. And then there's this mass of people where they're not really bothered one way or another. And I kind of see it as my job to try and enthuse them or get them to see why this is important and to develop a better understanding of it. So, you know, when you're trying to choose topics, then it's a bit difficult. I mean, I, I try to not just choose the topics that I have the most knowledge about. I mean, mm. if I, I could run a course that's based on energy security, right? And it would be easier for me because um, yeah, I could have lots of different country case studies or whatever, but um, a lot of students, Obviously, they care about climate change and sustainability issues. They care about energy poverty. Um, so, I mean, I try to give this sort of wide-ranging overview of the topic, in a sense, um, and then try and draw the connections between um, different topics. Um, but I, I end up changing the topics every year, which is not very good for my own sort of workload management. I've, I've got a tendency to tinker. I'm already thinking about what I'm going to change for next year, which is not great. But um, No, but yeah, I, I, mean, I have I the same problem. Good. I'm constantly changing it, right? And then you have to redo the whole yeah teaching plan and, and everything that you're... But, but energy is always changing. This And there's always really exciting... The changes are really exciting and you want to talk about those. Oh, definitely. And, and I also think there's a kind of almost like a responsibility in some respects. So one of the decisions I took when I first did the course was I wanted to get in energy democracy. And I wanted that as a topic. I kind of thought put that at the end as the sort of big sum up. Um, simply because I thought, well, I don't want students to come through this course, got uh, this broad understanding of how things currently work, but also then think, oh, we can't change anything or that you know the ng sector is just fixed in one way because a lot of what i end up talking about or a lot of the readings uh, that i get students to do are all talking about oh there's trade-offs between this that and the other thing or there's these path dependencies that make change difficult so i wanted to make sure there was a topic that sort of switched that um a little bit um and that's a topic i knew nothing about but i i at least thought well let's put that in there that will get students to think a little differently. And it was also an opportunity for me to learn about something. Right? I mean, I think that's the other thing that we yeah. um, you can forget with teaching is it's a good chance to just learn stuff that you're not probably going to do research on, although you might. You might then develop an interest in things. Um, so this yeah. is the advantage of doing this podcast because I'm I get to learn all the time <laughs> about everything, right? So... Well, yeah, especially with the range of guests you've had on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it forces me to read uh, on certain topics and then, of course, speak to people to help cl clarify like what they're doing and and learn the latest things that are going on. And then I just find it such an asset to go then into the classroom. And then now now I'm, I mean, I don't know, right? I'm forcing my students to listen to my podcast. <laughs> so, but, but I just feel like, uh, it's, and some of them really connect well because it's just the yeah. different teaching style and learning style rather than reading a, a, well, I'll just say a boring journal article or something, right? <laughs> for me, it'd be really exciting for them. It might be quite boring, but then to talk to the author or someone that was involved in a report, they can, they can really get it much easier. I think. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I have increasingly tried to find other kinds of resources that students can engage with, you know. Um, I mean, I always use like policy reports and think tank kind of things or stuff from NGOs, but yeah, podcasts are a great way of doing this. Um, I actually also try and find videos. Um, YouTube has a surprisingly large number of videos on energy. I mean, most of them are like company marketing kind of things, but yeah, there's ways you can kind of integrate that into teaching. Um, you know, for instance, if um, 
like it's something showing this video of um it's one of the, the bp ones um and they're talking about you know beyond petroleum everything is all green this lovely color scheme and it's great as a conversation starter for saying okay why is bp this large oil company why is it presenting itself like that what what are the sort of like the politics behind that you know um and then you can show things around how BP market themselves in different parts of the world, you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, trying to just find other ways of engaging students is always good. I, I agree. It's interesting for us. The, the big oil companies have some of the best videos to show. I mean, the most <laughs> engaging, right? So then you have to deconstruct and wait, why do they do this? But here's a great view on wind farms from BP or something, right? So, <laughs> Oh, definitely. You also get good ones with... Um, uh, there's a guy, Tom Scott, who does these sort of educational videos, or I think the oh. series is called Things You Might Not Already Know. And he's got a whole bunch of videos where it's actually just him visiting some piece of energy infrastructure. And oh. he'll give a bit of the background history on it. Like, there's one where he talks about basically the national grid in the UK. Now, I haven't really figured out a good way to integrate that into teaching, because that's maybe a bit too specific. But I'm... Um, but I do put up this list on our sort of online learning envir environment, um, basically there for any of the students who suddenly realise, oh, this stuff's quite interesting for them to just end up watching a bunch of videos and just, I guess, oh, cool. <laughs> geek out on it. And yeah, geek of, out you know. on YouTube, like have a geek out list. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, it's it's good fun. And I, I, I actually got that in some of my evaluations this year of how much a few students really like the Tom Scott videos of it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Okay, I'm going to steal that. And and actually, I wanted to move over to the, because uh, actually you published an article. You were like brave enough to spend time and learn how to do teaching, right? And then to write an academic journal article on how you do your teaching. And one of the things that you, you brought up and you looked at was the benefit of using policy briefs or position papers. And I was wondering, could you describe like a uh, why why do you use those and what are the benefits of of that type of assignment yeah so um i mean i guess the sort of impetus for doing this actually came from working in a policy environment so i briefly worked for the european court of auditors um and oh. i was focusing on ng issues so this is a performance audit of eu ng policy and infrastructure spending and one of the things that I found when I was working there was, oh, you need to write very differently. This is this has got to be really accessible to the point. You're presenting things to very busy people who, um, yeah, they don't have the time to wade through a bunch of academic writing. So, um, but I realized actually that's quite a tricky skill. You know, it's not something we tend to get taught. And I, and I thought, actually, I'd like to do that in my teaching just in general to have that opportunity. But, um, but I guess there's... There's two main benefits, I think. One is that, so the technical language for it is that policy briefings can be a more authentic form of assessment in the sense that um, if you have writing tasks which in some way approximate the kind of tasks that students will do when they go out into the world, then that can be a better form of preparation rather than the pieces to academic essays. I mean, there's nothing wrong with academic essays. They're very useful for things. I use them in, in my NG class and others, but um, having an assessment where students have to write very accessibly, be to the point, use visual attention points like graphs, charts, and so on, um, I think that's quite a useful skill to have. The second thing, though, and this is actually my main reason for doing it is um, a good assessment for me is one that gets students to learn as opposed to just being a thing you do once you've read and learned a bunch of stuff uh, and then you regurgitate it in a form that will appeal to the university or to the to the uh, lecturer if I'm being a bit too flippant with it um, instead getting them to actually go and research something so I do I set policy briefs for this class where students have a list of countries, they can choose whichever one they, do, they want, and they have to figure out, you know, the key characteristics of that system. So like the energy mix, um, uh, where they get source, uh, supplies of oil, gas, or whatever. Um, 
And then they have to look at the governance, so who takes decisions, how are decisions made, and also highlight a few key policy challenges that that country is going to face in the next few years. And one of the great things about that is, while I do say to them, you know, you should go and look at academic research on this, right, because there's a lot of good material. But I also say, go and look at, you know, strategy documents, what do NGOs say, uh, what do companies say? And they have to kind of figure it out. And there's always this sort of reaction of initially students are terrified because basically they're used to writing essays, getting grades, they've figured out the formula to do yes. it a way that works for them. And now they're being told, oh, no, no, that's not how this works. You need to go and do research. And so they panic a bit. But then we, I, I do different tasks in the seminars that are sort of geared towards this, mm. um, uh, this sort of task. And they do it. And then typically they do pretty well at it. And the good thing as well is it does mean that when they then do their later essay, as a general rule, the quality of the writing is pretty high. Oh, good. Because I have basically been on at them saying, I don't understand what this four line sentence means. You know, I'm, I'm reading this as a busy uh, official. Uh, yes. um, you know, I don't have time to try and decipher academic <laughs> rambling. So, um, yeah, it has that sort of benefit. But, the, and, but more to the point, actually, the, most of them tend to enjoy it. I mean, there's a few who won't, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's something just a bit different um, for students to do. So because they don't know the formula, it also forces them to oh, yeah. make sense of a thing. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So actually the quality of these tends to be quite high. Yeah, that's great. I lo- but I love that line. Like, I don't understand this. Not just, I'm not a busy professor, but let's just say I'm a busy policymaker, <laughs> right? So, and what are you trying to say? Like, what is this? Yeah. I do this entire thing where in the first seminar, I say, okay, you have to do this policy brief. So here's the scenario. I am the newly appointed energy minister of the independent state of Glasgow. Um, I need to get up to speed on the energy policies of lots of countries that we'll be dealing with. Um, and you are our, my expert team. Uh, you have to do all this uh, research for me. Um, the thing to remember is that I am basically an idiot. I mean, yes. I'm not an idiot. I mean, I can read and understand stuff, but I am not an energy <laughs> expert. So you can't assume that I'm going to know all this sort of thing. Um, I, I don't know what uh, unbundling is or third-party access is or what security mm-hmm. supply is. Uh, so, yeah, you need to explain it. But it's so relevant, and I think it's so important. Um, I mean, I'll just say yes for the students in their assignments, but I would also say in regular academic writing. I'm like now I'm, I'm working with a co-author on a, a book chapter about uh, COVID and the impact on the economic growth in Central Eastern Europe. And, you know, the target audience is, yeah, other academics, but also policymakers. So we can't write that chapter in a, you know, opaque way. We have to make it very direct and engaging and deliver a very, be very clear, right? But we also have to use academic sources, statistics and everything. And it's completely relevant, I think, for, for all our types of writing, like, People don't have time now. <laughs> People yeah. don't read books and you have to be very explicit what you're doing at the beginning and what what the suggestions are. Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, it's an important skill for us to develop as researchers, especially with the topic like energy, because this has direct relevance and bearing on a whole range of different issues. Um, and and people are interested in this sort of thing if you can present it in a good way. I mean, um, you know, there's obviously a place for the sort of like frontier kind of research, working out, well, working with particular these are quite complex methodologies. Absolutely, you know, we don't all need to uh, speak to a policy audience all the time. But it's, I think, it's quite an important skill to develop um, and refine um, over time. Yeah, it's very, it's very hard, and you kind of learned. I mean, I know you've done different things, but coming from this like um, international relations policy kind of background and interest, this is how you make this connection. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I had to write these 
things for a living. I mean, it was, um, I worked in, it was in a private office. So, um, so akin to working for a minister, I mean, it's not for that institution, but it's the same basic thing. So you were basically on tap uh, to, you know, come in one morning and um, have your boss say, um, can you give me a briefing on the impact of the Greek elections on electricity market liberalisation in about an hour? And so you just had to <laughs> do it. Um, and it, it kind of forces you to be really succinct and think about what are the key points you're trying to get across. Um, it also um, certainly improved my writing in a sense. Um, I mean, I, as obviously you know from my accent, I'm Scottish. And so um, sometimes our English is a little different from the sort of standard um, uh, English in the UK. So, and my boss was, um, I think an Oxford graduate and was very particular about uh, language. So I had to learn to be really on point with grammar and so on. Otherwise it would come back with just red pen all over it and so on. Uh, yeah. oh, I thought that was just because I was American. Cause you know, I did my PhD in Bristol and yeah. yeah, I had trouble with that. My American, I would say thinking and my American writing and approach. And then I definitely had to switch to a different, like, I don't say, Eng I just say British kind of type of academic writing oh definitely no there's there's definitely a different style um and i think that's actually I mean, going back to the policy briefs as an assessment i mean i think that's one of the other reasons i quite like them because a lot of the time when students from all over the world come to university um one of the barriers they face is trying to tune in to like the style of writing that works in that place like glasgow or edinburgh are going to look different from oxford cambridge bristol or wherever um, and they're certainly going to look different from an american university so you know whereas the policy briefs in some ways are a little easier for yeah. people who are coming in from a different national background or and, and so on because it's quite straightforward, simple writing. In fact, it's not, it, in some ways, it's more American um, if, as a style of writing, I think. You know, it's quite clear, succinct. You know exactly what this means, you know, as soon as you look at it, whereas British writing can be a bit more fluid, yes. Uh, yes. I guess. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I would say, I don't know, we shouldn't go down there, but, but uh, kind of back in depth, in a lot of depth to it, I find the British writing, you have to be, you have to have the depth where I would say, I'll just say the American approach would be the breadth of it would, would, would be breadth over depth and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely get some of that. It's just bad memories for me trying to, <laughs> trying to <laughs> learn the different system. Now I know it. Now my PhD students have to suffer. So, uh, but let's, let's move on a little bit. Um, and while we're kind of on this UK US topic, let's go to UK EU energy relations. And, and I was just wondering, maybe you could explain the impact. And I'm interested in this because I, I follow things, but I, I haven't read so much on this. What, what has been the impact of Brexit on UK EU energy relations? And that's a completely broad topic. And I let you go wherever you want to on it. Um, so I guess. <laughs> It's a little difficult to say at the moment because not a lot has happened. I mean, I think that early on, well, after the referendum results, there was then a lot of discussion about how, you know, the UK leaving the internal electricity and gas markets, that was going to have a major impact on the UK, you know, um, energy would cost more, it would be less secure. All these sort of standard arguments came out. But... I actually think there's a lot of continuity or there's more continuity mm -hmm. than change, right? Because, I mean, one way to think about it, I think, is to sort of try and disentangle like the sort of macro politics from the sort of meso or meso level. So if macro politics is all about the UK is leaving the EU, it's negotiating whether it's going to be part of the single market through um, EEA membership or if it's going to have some other kind of arrangement um, 
all of that sort of thing. That's one set of considerations, and obviously that's going to have an impact. But actually, at the meso level, basically everyone on both the UK and EU side, anyone involved in the energy sector, anyone in companies, regulators, even most of civil society, they all basically said, we want to try and maintain things as they are as much as possible. We want stability. We want regulations to not change. We want the same kind of trading relationship. And they don't, those two things don't necessarily pull in different directions because, um, I mean, what has happened is that the UK and the EU, as part of the negotiations, they have had to work out some of aspects of this relationship, but they haven't actually got that far. I mean, the UK has left the EU, but most of the issues on energy are sort of left for negotiation. Um, I mean, the so the documents that have been signed are the Trade and Cooperation Agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol. So the first one sets out some broad objectives, but most of it is basically saying we want to kind of keep the trading relationship broadly the same. There's some things the UK can't really participate in. So there's going to be some, well, there has been some changes on um, electricity and gas trading in terms of the timeframes. So like the UK is no longer part of the day ahead um, uh, trading uh, for electricity. Gas is a little different. it's also got things about, well, okay, the UK can't be part of the EU emissions trading scheme, so it has to set up its own one, which it's currently sort of doing. I mean, it should have done it by now, but it hasn't. Um, and so that will kick in. Um, but most of the rest of it is saying things like, we want to keep interconnectors running. There's no tariffs. There's, I mean, there's no tariffs on electricity and gas between the two. Um Interconnectors should be used to full capacity and open to the market. So that's basically the same as it was under the internal market uh, rules. Um, there's there's some changes. Uh, oh, sorry, I should say actually with that, the, the, the one big issue, the one really tricky one was with Ireland because prior to Brexit, the island of Ireland was in the process of setting up its own single electricity market because Northern Ireland and Ireland and the South um yeah, they're so interconnected that it made yeah. sense to do this and to have the efficiencies of trade. But obviously, you've got different trading rules uh, that can then be in place. The thing that has allowed that to continue is the Northern Ireland Protocol, which basically means that Northern Ireland, in many of the states, stays within the EU in terms of its regulatory framework. Um, you know, It's subject to single market rules in many areas. Um, and that was seen as necessary for not erecting a hard border um, for trade purposes um, on the island of Ireland, which of course would be very politically damaging. Um, So uh, that's been the sort of compromise. Um, There's other things that are changing a little bit. I mean, um, I I think one of the things that's kind of an odd one, and it shows why regulations and law don't always trump politics is security of gas supplies, just to go back to my favourite topic, because um, if you look at the security of gas supply regulation that the EU has, which has things around, you know, a principle of solidarity, share your gas if there is a gas supply disruption, um, and um, also have sort of forward planning and monitoring of any incidents. Um, So the UK is no longer part of that. it can't be uh, part of the gas coordination group that meets um, or not as a standing member. Um, and there was a lot of talk of, well, okay, the UK's security gas supplies might be hampered by this. But in reality, it doesn't make a massive amount of difference because the interconnectors are still running, is one thing. But more than that, Ireland is not connected to the EU single market physically anyway, except for the UK. Oh, right. Uh-huh. And in fact, Ireland has been dependent on the UK for a long time. At the moment, it's not because it's got one gas field, the Corrib gas field, but that's going to run out quite quickly. So basically, if Ireland wants gas, it has to come from the UK. So if you imagine a scenario where very cold winter across northwestern Europe, um, Ireland is running low on gas supplies, maybe the UK as well, perhaps Belgium and whatnot, then in reality, what you'd expect to happen is the UK would 
be involved with discussions about how to manage this, how to share gas, what customers do you cut off first if you absolutely have to, all that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, in that respect, that's exactly the same or broadly the same yeah. scenario as before Brexit. So in a lot of ways, it's basically this, um, just a continuation of how it was. The, the one caveat to that is you're probably going to get long-term drift and change in the legal frameworks for gas and electricity trade, just inevitably, because the EU will do certain things. The UK doesn't have influence now. It's not part of the, it's not part of ACER. It's not part of NSOE, NSOG, or it has some arrangements for working with them, but it's not full members. Or actually, I think it might be a member of NSOE, but that's because of peculiar thing in its constitution. Uh, these are the transmission it, system operators for gas yeah, and sorry, electricity. The, uh-huh. Yeah, um, and that's obviously important for the technical rules for how the market works because they are all involved in setting the or agreeing the network codes, um, these technical rules. So, um, yeah, the UK won't have the same level of influence because it's not always in the room and it certainly doesn't have access to the political institutions. So, the UK it kind of has to work harder to try and influence EU policy than it ever did oh, before. Uh-huh. Um, this is their, this is the, certainly civil servants within the energy ministry in the UK, that's their big fear, it has been all along, that just over time, the UK and the EU will gradually start to drift apart, just in small and subtle ways. But by the same token, the overarching energy policy is broadly the same. You know, it's we want a liberalised, competitive market. The UK set this sort of thing up um, before um, the EU. It has been expanded in different ways by the EU. Um, you may get some tweaks in how you do that, but yeah, is it really going to make a massive amount of difference? I'm not. It's actually sure hard hard to imagine that the EU would exceed the UK in pushing for more liberal markets. Then you know what I'm saying. Like the UK yeah. is usually the trendsetter ahead so yeah. although there is one scenario that's allowed by the trade and cooperation agreement um which is that it recognizes that you can have different models of unbundling so separating out the different functions of uh, gas and electricity companies which was so central for liberalization and under the third energy package the whole principle was well we'll have different models like one model can be full ownership on bundling, but there's other ones where we have some separation of functions, but the ownership can be retained and, and so on. But the principle was, if you go for full ownership on bundling, you can't go back. You know, that's the end goal is that you're meant to be pushing yeah. for. Um, whereas this agreement says, actually, different models can work. So, you know, the UK could, in principle, take parts of it into public ownership or something like that. I mean, not the current government, obviously. It's uh, <laughs> no. the Conservative government uh, would not, uh, or they unlikely to do that. But you could see some things like that. But uh-huh. Does it make a difference? And, and what's um, tie into the gas, I, and I don't know so much about this, but like with North Sea gas, I know supplies or extraction is maybe being phased out, but I was just wondering, like, what is the future of that? And then, I'm just imagining or I'm guessing that that flows to Ireland, for example, or how 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 does the gas sector adjust? That's a very broad question. Um, well, so the gas, I mean, the oil and gas sector, it's probably best to talk about them together. Um, okay. I mean, the the UK policy on, on the North Sea is basically maximise production, try to get as much of um, the remaining resource out of of the the seabed as you possibly can, Um, cut taxes for um, oil gas companies in in doing that. Um, So that, I mean, that's just going to continue um, in in that regard um, until it becomes, you know, economically and politically unsustainable uh, to do so. I mean, the gas that comes from there combined with Norway, or sorry, Norwegian gas, um, and then also even some supplies that come into the UK to LNG terminals, that 
some of that does go across to Ireland on at different points in the year. Um, okay. Uh, but that's probably just going to continue. Um, yeah, I don't really see any change in that regard. So, so we're not going to see any French fishing boats invading the UK and like cutting <laughs> off electrical lines or something like this. You can always tell when the French have an election. Um, Macron has to uh, flex his muscles a little bit. Um, I, mean, I mean, sorry, but just the fact <laughs> that we just bought, talked for like 10 minutes about a very boring topic. Really, I mean, it's, it's very boring just because it's it's continuing, right? So there's no crisis like we started off the conversation about how great yeah. crisis is, right? So this is not an area to do research on because there's nothing happening and it's really boring <laughs> which is good which is true. very good yeah it's, it is good um i mean i suppose that might all change um based on the <laughs> scottish election results uh, over the weekend <laughs> yeah well i wanted to ask you uh let's, yeah let's talk about that uh, while we're on or on scotland so um do can i plan on becoming a Scottish citizen soon based on my ancestry if Scotland becomes independent or and, and joins the EU? Or what's the deal there? My self-interest. Um, it's certainly more likely than it has been for a while. Um, so when we're recording this, um, the mm -hmm. Scottish elections took place um, four days ago, I think it is. Um, and the result was that political parties in favour of independence got an overall majority, they increased their majority uh, within the Scottish Parliament, which um, is um, based on a sort of semi-proportional system. So it's the Scottish National Party and the Scottish Green Party. The Scottish Green Party actually did particularly well. And that has sort of had quite a lot of fallout in the last few days. Um, so the plan is, or the Scottish Government's plan, is to hold a referendum at some point during this Parliament. Now, it's a little tricky because the basically constitutional matters of that kind are reserved to the British Parliament. So to do it legally, you probably need, you do need their support. Certainly that's what happened with the last referendum. Um, there was an agreement to implement the result of the referendum. Um, but, and there's a, well, there's a lot of discussion about whether the British government will do that or not, or whether they'll just continue to say no. But this is now a battle between sort of like legal interpretation and sort of politics or the sort of moral case for, as the SNP would put it, um, that Scottish people should decide their own future. Um, particularly because we've had, since the last referendum, Brexit, handling of the COVID pandemic and so on. Um, and it's certainly the case that support for independence has been really quite driven by um, opposition to Brexit because Scotland voted against Brexit. Um, whereas, what, what uh, was the what was the uh, split of the vote? I think it was oh. uh, was it sixty three percent remain. I think it ended up being sixty two, sixty six four, somewhere around there. So I mean, it was entirely different from um, England and Wales. Northern Ireland also um, was in favour of staying. So, I mean, that does not necessarily mean that everyone in Scotland wants to rejoin the EU. Um, there is still a sizable minority who want to stay out of it, some of whom are in the SNP, uh, some who are nationalists, and others who are on the what we call the unionist side, those in favour of keeping the UK together. Um, but nonetheless, if there is another referendum and if it were to be won by the independence side, then you would expect Scotland would be looking to join the EU quite quickly. Um, it's, uh, I mean, how long it would take is the kind of open question um, because Scotland would have to apply, they would have to go through the accession process like any other um, applying state, but you would expect it would be a more accelerated process just because Scotland already, in effect, applied a lot of EU laws that were just moved over to the um, the statute book um, with Brexit. Um, so if that happens in a short, short enough time frame, there's not that much to change. Um, there are some other barriers. Um, for one thing, the big question in Scotland is what currency we're going to use and whether the different options would be compatible with EU membership. So Scotland, well, the 
Scottish government and other political parties, they have not said, well, they've said they don't want to use the euro, at least not initially. Uh-huh. So that's a bit of a barrier. One option is continuing to use the British pound, but <laughs> it's a bit tricky to then join uh, the EU when you're using the currency of another country. Um, so you probably have to set up your own currency, which will take time. Um, so there's things like that. And then there's also just the big question of how do you figure out the relations with the UK? Because Scotland, like Ireland, will be physically disconnected from the rest of the EU. They're not even joined together. Uh, yeah. um, so how do you work out things like tra- um, travel, uh, different regulatory standards and so on? So it's it, it's going to be tricky and messy. It will take a while if it does indeed happen. But um, yeah, maybe could look to apply for that uh, citizenship <laughs> in about 10 years maybe uh, <laughs> possibly <laughs> okay for my retirement I'll, I'll move to scotland because you have such nice weather so <laughs> <laughs> yeah as is the standard uh, scottish weather it is raining at the moment <laughs> that's yeah just, that's just normal. i'm dying in, in michigan right now it's yeah may and it's still freezing at night and not very warm during the day I, i've been spoiled living in hungary because yeah nice nice oh. weather so oh yeah the weather's so much nicer i i <laughs> I sometimes think I need to actually move to continental Europe just just yes. for my own sort of well-being. Sanity. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, we just have one more one more question, I think, to get through. And this was uh, actually maybe this is the biggest question and it was a mistake to leave it at the end. But the impact of COVID-19. Um, and I was just um, – and you actually started research on, on a, a – Actually, could you explain it? I don't want to say you started research on a pandemic and energy, but could you describe what you began uh, researching before there was a pandemic? Like you're like cool before it was cool type of thing and explain. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't have a crystal ball with this. It, basically, like, like many good research projects, it just started with a conversation with a friend of mine. Um, so, so colleague of mine, uh, John Connolly, the, the two of us, uh, we've known each other for years and we were talking one day about, oh, is there something we could do together? And he does research on um, health security and crisis management. So he was kind of the person who was really into this. Um, but obviously I was working on energy security at the time as well. And we thought, well, actually it, it would be quite good to look at, you know, some of the similarities and differences in terms of how crises are managed in these different sectors, because they're very different, but they've, they've got some similarities, at least in terms of like the sort of institutional setup, you know, of uh, within the European Union. So that there's some set of arrangements if there's a transnational crisis versus something more local and so on. And that was the general idea. We were kind of putting uh, some thoughts on paper, and then uh, the UK voted, to, well, not perfect to that, but perfect. This is a good chance for us to maybe do something looking specifically so that we'd have on crisis management in the UK. And these were two case studies. Uh, discussions of how do you manage these complex crises that was not the it just wasn't talked about and actually these two policy areas were totally ignored i mean what the impact if any would be of leaving things like the european medicines agency So yeah, we we started doing interviews and um, examining um, all of that. We've ended up having to sort of interrupt this a little bit because you know it's one thing to do a comparison about the impact of Brexit, but then when COVID happens, that's another big thing that just sort of throws the whole pandemic planning or public health security issues into um, or just throws them out of whack. So um, so yeah, we're having to regroup with that, but we're also working. Or on a, um, an article 
looking at the impact of um, sort of elite framing on um, the, the uh, support for social distancing measures in the UK. So we kind of pivoted to that temporarily, see where that goes, and then we're hoping. And you're working to- on a on a journal article for elite framing, yeah. and and what do you what do you explore in, in the article? So our so this involves a whole bunch of other um, researchers from across the UK, and what we did is um, very early on in the pandemic, and um, just as or not long after lockdown was first implemented in the UK, we put out a survey um, to try and gauge the impact of the uh, framing on public attitudes towards social distancing. So, what is it explains why uh, people support or oppose these measures? Um, and at the time, a lot of the discussion was, or yeah, a, a lot of the other research in this was focusing very much on um, personal health uh, considerations and also uh, socioeconomic background. Um, and so, for instance, if people are um, likely to lose their jobs or whatnot, you know, it was focusing on that sort of thing. But we ended up um, looking at the impact of actually the threat framing itself. Um, so we were looking to see, well, what are the th- uh, the sort of framings of threat that resonate with people? Um, so in the UK, one of the things that was talked about very early on, and this was used in all of the government branding, was um, uh, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives, the NHS being the National Health Service. Um, so you would think that was maybe the thing that kind of would uh, work uh, best with people. But actually, um, no, it wasn't a concern about whether the NHS would collapse. It wasn't a major um, issue for people. Instead, it was the idea that there is no alternative uh, to going into lockdown, to not going into work um, and, and everything like that. Um, and we found that was actually a much better statistical explanation than personal health considerations and uh, and so on. So and there's other things in there about so so being very clear on like this is the only choice we have to do right like we have to shut everything down yeah. and there's no alternative to to this just being i mean that's a very concise and very clear message so that was that had the biggest resonance like for people to understand oh absolutely i mean and this this is securitization this is what this looks like saying there is absolutely no alternative to this course of action um this is not a debate. <laughs> Stay home. How how is that securitization? I don't. I, um, I don't, so I don't know. by by basically saying we have to adopt these absolutely extraordinary measures, you know, this isn't something we can put to public debate, to scrutiny in Parliament. Uh, none of that. People have to uh, stay home for public health reasons and. That's it. Even though there's going to be economic damage, even though this is going to have impact on mental health and so on. I mean, and obviously I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, but nonetheless, that clearly really resonated with people up more than any other kind of explanation, um, which is quite remarkable, actually. In, in, okay. in that regard, securitization theory at least works in that setting, if not. No, I think, I think it'd be really cool to then compare that finding to then actually like real case studies like the US, like how Trump uh, framed it at the beginning. I mean, antidotally, maybe we, you know, can talk about this, but then those countries that, yeah, express this very clear message and those countries that were not so clear on what needs to be done. So you can see this in two ways, um, like a comparison outside the UK and then internally. So outside the UK, um, so say in the United States, there was... There were these other sort of discourses around it's the China virus, it's China's fault. And also the sort of anti-science sort of um, uh, sort of trend uh, that, you know, saying, oh, it isn't really a pandemic or it's not really uh, killing people. It's not as bad as it seems. It's just the common cold. And Donald Trump was obviously key in promoting both of these. You didn't have that in the UK or not to that extent. I mean, you do have lockdown skeptics, but... And you do have some people who blame China, but that wasn't the main part of the uh, the discourse. Instead, it was very much the sort of the core of the uh, government messaging that managed to uh, cut through in that regard. By the same token, there's an interesting comparison between Scotland and England. So 
one of the things that I don't think most people had realised before the pandemic is how much power the devolved governments in the UK, so Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, how much power they have over actual crisis management. They are responsible for practically, well, most of the main parts of that. They don't do things on vaccine rollout or economic support through furlough schemes and things like that, or travel bans, but they focus on everything else. And there is a contrast has been repeatedly drawn between initially the British government's quite poor communications. I mean, they got these core messages across, but they were not very clear about, you know, things like how long is this going to be for, um, or we need to lock down now to prevent major problems later. Um, instead, they sort of, um, I was about to say the Scottish thing, hummed and hawed, but they they, they were a bit indecisive. They, yeah. they were a bit indecisive uh, about this. Whereas in Scotland, um, the First Minister, Nicola Surgeon, has been kind of regarded as having a much better pandemic in terms of her communication. It's been clear, it's been um, empathetic, it's sort of saying we understand how difficult this is, but this has to happen. It's the same threat framing, it's the same, there is no alternative, but, I un- but also just saying, but I understand why this is difficult and so on, and being much clearer about timelines and how as the science, uh, as new scientific evidence emerges, how that may change um, different things. Uh, And that's despite the fact that although Scotland probably has done a little bit better on some metrics in terms of case numbers and number of deaths and so on, um, it's not massively different from England. Uh, You know, it's certainly in comparison to some other countries. Um, Now, part of that's because it's the same island, you know, things like travel bans and economic support are going to have a major impact on what sort of lockdown you can do. But um, yeah, it's actually largely a, or there's a significant part of it is about communication. Um, and so that more effective communication seemed to work. People were supposedly a bit more compliant and um, yeah, it seems to have um, worked quite well. Oh, that's great. So in that article's uh, you're just c- copy editing it right now, or yeah? Um, well, it, we no, it's a revise and resubmit. So we've got a few little tweaks to do um, uh, before um, it's finalised. But yeah, um, we're hoping it should come out in the coming months. And then we've got another survey that we've just started to do a comparison a year later. Or a bit wow! Later, a year later. Oh, that's great. Actually, I mean, the world of academic publishing is pretty quick turnaround from doing the research to to publishing it so yeah great okay andy i want to thank you so much uh for coming on and covering all these topics uh with me it's been great thank you well thank you very much if i can just say one last thing yes is um one of the things that's particularly nice about doing this interview is that uh, this happened because we of uh former student of mine who yes. ended up studying at your institution and then we ended up in touch that way. So I think that's one of the nice things about teaching you get to also make these sort of connections um, with other people. I mean, I've read some of your work, but we've never met before. So I'm, I'm no. to get a chance to talk to you. Yeah. And I actually have to say that uh, the two students that came from Glasgow to, yes, to see, see Lucille. Yeah, that came. They were the most active in our EPRG group organizing events, and they did fantastic. So they they came in with this energy background. They knew who they wanted to invite. One already works at a um, a bioethanol company. The other one, now I know she's doing an internship at a consulting company. So they they came in to see you, totally dedicated to, to doing things. And yeah, because of them, we, we were connected, but also like they contributed so much this past year to, to CEU and building up this, our energy policy research group. So I, I think, yeah, we, we should actually have further discussions about feeding in students because we don't have an undergrad. Uh, well, we do now we do have an undergrad program, but the, the more students I would say in our master's program where the, they can really specialize on energy or environmental climate change issues, the, the better. And, and, and those students with a background in this area, I, I, yeah, I have a handful every year that, that have worked for energy companies or kind of studied energy issues or things. And they're, they're so active and it's, it's a great and, and I allow them to like participate yeah, in our EPRG group, building it up. 
and then the benefit is even wider. So then it gets those kind yeah. of, uh, I don't say marginal students, those students that are kind of interested in energy, excited about energy, and then they go off. And I see now after, I don't know, about 10 years of teaching, they go off now into companies and organizations, NGOs, and are actually doing the stuff. So uh, thanks for educating these two students so well <laughs> and sending them to me. I, I would take uh, full credit for that, but I'm just, I'm delighted that's what they're doing. I'm, I'm really happy with that. And yes, we should definitely have a chat somewhere yes. soon. Um, I, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm expected to go to uh, the UK for two months. I, I have a fellowship there uh, in London. Uh, I don't know oh. if that's going to happen. It was supposed to happen this June and May, but um, I think maybe I'll, it'll be delayed for next year, but I'm definitely going to be... And I'll definitely be coming to Scotland. So oh, definitely let, let me know. Um, okay. I'm, ha- I'm very happy to show you around. <laughs> Good. No, I will definitely let you know. So Andy, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. That's great. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn 